Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This third series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of events, the sector of the market which has been most hard hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. For this episode, I'd like to introduce Simon Honeywell, an amazing sound engineer that I've known for probably three decades now, who has a ton of experience and opinions about how this might go in the future. Simon's talking to us from Plymouth in England. So welcome, Simon. Hi, Graham. Hi. So let's start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your history and um, where you fit into all of this. (laughs) I'm still trying to work that out, actually. (laughs) um, (laughs) uh, Right. Well, um, I've been in the audio industry uh, for over 40 years. I I served a traditional apprenticeship at R.G. Jones Sound Engineering, uh, one of the great schools of audio, you know, practical learning schools of audio. Uh, I joined them in 79 and um, without really knowing that was what I wanted to do. And uh, I suddenly decided it was something I quite liked and I wanted to become good at. And um, I was determined to... Yeah, be. I wanted to be the man. I, you know, I wanted, I wanted to, to, to be there and do it all. And uh, I suppose, largely through circumstance, but with the help of some fairly stellar individuals, uh, I managed to gain a, uh, an incredible education. Um, I did a lot of work in the early days in in, in sort of TV and things where such things as standards and protocols, such as they were in the bad old analog days, um, were drilled into me. Um, but m- musically, uh, my my kind of inauguration, my, my initiation was with classical music, for which I am uh, eternally grateful. Uh, and uh, I, I, throughout the 80s and 90s, I did a, a huge amount of work uh, in reinforcing classical music concerts and in certain cases making them extremely loud um, without you know destroying or make, trying not to destroy the, the fidelity of the music and I gained quite a reputation for that unlike many engineers I then sort of I graduated backwards into rock and roll and have mixed artists such as Goldfrapp, Chris Rea, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, which is an epic production on uh, every scale. Catherine Jenkins, many of the major kind of classical music that have Jose Carreras's and Luciano Pavarotti's. Um, you name it, I've worked work with them, really. Uh, uh, lots of big kind of multi-artist shows in places like Wembley and, and yeah, Royal Albert Hall and, you know, with, with household names. Um it, yeah, I've kind of been there and done it, and I've done a lot of system design, 
both for touring and uh, an installation. Um, and I'm uh, I won an award as Sound System Designer of the Year in 2018 um, for the, the UK TPI Awards. And uh, I've also been recently uh, part of winning two CDR awards for home cinemas, which is something I've been doing quite a lot of recently um, with a company called Pyramid uh, in the UK with uh, run by a friend of mine. Um, and uh, yeah, I kind of, you've been there, I've, you know, I've been there and done it, Graham, you know that. Yep, I do. There's a couple of other things you didn't mention. Um uh, which I think is maybe interesting in this context, your work with the Glastonbury Festival. Oh, that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell us about that. Um, Glastonbury, yeah, Glastonbury uh, is kind of the, uh, it, it, it's the father of, and mother of all uh, of all festivals, really. Um, it's been going since 1970, and I'm consultant sound engineer to the festival. Um, that is, if we ever have another one, that is. But I've been working with them 10 years now. Um, and my job there is uh, essentially system design. Whenever there's a new stage, I get involved in the design, um, if it's a significant stage. And I've redesigned the audio systems on several of the major stages with a view to increasing the audience experience whilst reducing the levels off-site. Um, and it's been extremely successful. And perhaps most excitingly in 2019 was the introduction of a new stage called Icon, uh, which is in the, one of the late night sections of the festival, which was a huge, um, it was a 6.1, essentially, surround system, an enormous one, with an in incredible sculptural set, which the um, was projection mapped and uh, it, it has to be seen and heard to be believed, really. But that that's something worth talking about. Yeah, it is. And and seeing. I mean, I highly recommend listeners to uh, to Google that and look at the set. It's just remarkable. You know, for, for the American listeners, maybe Glastonbury's less well-known, but uh, certainly for English and European festival goers, it is the, you know, it's, it's the daddy of all festivals. It's huge. It's, um, how many stages are there? Over a hundred. Over a hundred. Wow. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, but you've also been very involved in education as well within the industry. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always, um, I've always been aware, I suppose, of the fact that there are a lot of people like myself when I started, involved in the industry with very little in the way of, uh, of a foundation. Um, you know, I learned on the job. I, I, I got the gig originally through, I suppose my natural charm. I don't know, but <laughs> a willingness, I suppose. Um, but you know, I want, I wanted to be a rock star. I ended up on the other end of the multi-core, but the education thing was something that, that, quite early on it occurred to me that there needed to be better ed, you know education in the audio industry and i'm talking the mid 80s here and um i got involved in a few things very early on uh, around uh kingston university uh in southwest london um but 
in 2004, I think it was, uh, my, my family and I moved back to my hometown of Plymouth down here in the southwest by the sea. And um, from where America's founding fathers departed, by all accounts, uh, and there was uh, there was there was a, uh, a an institution set up here called Deep Blue Sound who were offering it, they were offering essentially um, music technology courses, and I thought, well, I'll go and have a word with them, and uh, they gave me a job teaching teaching things like MIDI, which I didn't really understand at the time, um, and the history of music, which was very interesting, but again, not my strong point. But uh, that they eventually, I said to them, look, why don't you let me teach something I know? And uh, I got together with uh, a colleague of mine, Jim Parsons, who used to run an, an audio company called Tiger Hire, whose clients were people like Super Furry Animals and Radiohead. Uh, in in the uh, in their earlier days, Jim had recently sold his company and was living down here. And we got together and came up with the first ever fully accredited uh, live sound course in the UK. Um, which, until quite recently, went from strength to strength. And it was one of the there's been an explosion of that kind of thing worldwide uh, in in countries where you know where, where the professional audio is is a thing. And um, the, the 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 course was renowned for the fact that through mine and Jim's contacts, many people who went through it could be cherry picked by companies in the industry looking for new talent. So there's a whole load of people now out there in the industry who who went through our course, uh, and uh, yeah, it was a, a really good training ground. But it, it sadly it doesn't really exist anymore for reasons I won't go into here. So we're recording this in January 2021 um, at a time when England is in tier four total lockdown, uh, where, you know, America, not quite as locked down, but, um, but still pretty, pretty hard hit. Tell me what the last 10 months has been like for you and, and all of your mates in the events industry and the touring and, um, yeah, in the touring industry. That's a hell of a question. Um, well, uh, not surprisingly, uh, back in March 2020, when this kicked in, nobody really knew quite what to expect because, I mean, everything just came to a screeching halt. Uh, and I think a lot of people would would you know, if they were a hand on their heart being honest with themselves would say, oh, hang on a minute, I've got a bit of an enforced break here. This is quite nice without actually stopping to think about what the ongoing consequences might be. But the long and the short of it is that, that you know, the events industry is is as good as dead in the water. And, you know, festivals, touring, theatre, everything, you know, corporate work has has stopped <clears throat> and the large majority of people are freelance including myself and for me personally i suddenly had to come to terms with the fact that my 40 year stellar career 
um, if that's what you want to call it, actually stood for nothing. Um, and uh, I found that, looking back on it now, I, I was angry, uh, really angry. I can see that. I wasn't angry because of COVID. I was angry because the sacrifices I'd made and the amount of physical and mental effort I'd put into trying to be the best I possibly could at what I did suddenly stood for nothing and nobody at the time, they couldn't care less. You know, myself and many of my colleagues were just dumped, really. And it took a while before that started to turn around. Uh, as it turned out, I was very lucky. I'd been working for a good 10 or 12 years, 12 years, I should think, uh, with Martin Audio, the loudspeaker manufacturer, as a product advocate for some of their incredible products. And I got a, you know, I had a conversation with Dom Hart of the ND there. And he said, look, don't worry, you know, you're really important to us. We'll look after you, which they did. And also RG Jones, sound engineering, who I've had a lifelong association with. Um, they, they, you know, they've been retaining me forever, but I took a pay cut with them, but they, you know, they've, they've kept it up. Um, so I've been really, really lucky. Uh, unlike many others, there've been an awful lot of people who, well, have left the industry. They, they've either started new, their own new businesses. Uh, you know, one of my, one of my closest friends, who's a great engineer, um, you know, he started a landscape gardening business with a friend of his, the, the industry's lost talent because I don't think anybody's going to have the confidence for a very, very long time to, to go back to it. And also the fact that, that, that happened and everything just stopped and, and we would drop, I think has probably made everybody sit up and think about, you know, what is this industry really doing for me apart from perhaps giving me a deal of job satisfaction? It's, you know, it's, it's a vocation. It's something you commit your life to. And I think it's only fair that, uh somehow that is recognized and people are able to rely to an extent on 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 their talents and efforts being worth something to somebody um i think i think the long and the short of it really is that the industry has to change in that front and i think that that the gig economy uh is something that a lot of people won't want to go back to mm -hmm. We're going to move on and talk about the, the future a little bit. But before we do that, um, I did want to mention that you, along with a friend of yours, uh, Grace Cross, have put out an amazing track called Ain't Working Yet, um, <laughs> which is just a truly haunting track, which in these days was very relevant to, to the, what you're going through now. What sort of response have you had to that? Well, um, remarkable, actually. It's certainly taken me by surprise. Uh, I mean, we're not going to retire on it because who does these days? But 
I mean, the song has had, we're around 40,000 hits on YouTube worldwide. Um, it's a song that somehow it, it says how it is as far as people's, I think, emotional well-being is in this time. And whether or not you're in the events industry, if your life has been disrupted by COVID, I think that the song actually bizarrely was originally written in about 1982. Uh, <laughs> but but it tells the story of of the UK and what was going on here in those times, the Falklands War, the miners' strike, the all kinds of problems, uh, social problems in, in the, the sort of the early part of Margaret Thatcher's tenure as prime minister. Um, we were going through a, a, a great deal of, of stress and, um, and change and, uh, and people were suffering as a result of it. The song was written about that, but, with a few lyric changes and a very different musical arrangement, it seems to really be as relevant now as it was then. The problems are different for many, but the sentiments are the same. Tell us a little bit about uh, the We Make Events movement in in the UK, and I think it's in other countries in Europe, isn't it now? It took a while for people to kind of pick themselves up and think, my God, what are we going to do? Yeah, we have you know we have to we have to go to government with this situation the net worth i can't remember the numbers now but the net worth of the events industry in the uk is really significant it's in the billions you know we are regarded as being pretty good at it although i'm sure many american colleagues would argue with me about that mm. but <laughs> um we invented it we make events was uh a, a group of highly motivated people who got together and decided to use their uh, significant skills in in uh, putting together events and whatever, whether it's a practical skill or or a more of a, an administrative thing in in actually putting together a campaign to bring awareness of the plight of six hundred thousand odd people whose world had just disappeared, whose working world had just vanished. It was a really good campaign. The tie-in with the song is that I felt the, strong, the song really struck a chord to the plight of many people in our industry. And, and then the video, if you look it up on YouTube, um, the video, there is a, a moment where there is a shot from one of the We Make Events protests, events, that just really captures the, the the mood of of people. What's happened as a result of We Make Events is that you know the the the, the plight of these people has reached government, uh, and it's an ongoing process which uh, a lot of people have been working really really hard to to keep going. Where it ends, I don't really know. I can't say, but you know, all power to them because they're doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting video. I, I looked at it and saw a lot of my old friends uh, from from the industry from when I was living in England um, featuring it. It was it was lovely to to see those people again. So let's move on. And one of the things I've always admired about you. So so a little little 
diversion tangent if you like um i've always thought of simon as as a as a wise person and when i was going to become a parent some 19 years ago my daughter's 18 um now i wrote to simon and and asked him for advice about what parenthood looks like because he's got four children and um and I thought he might be able to offer me some insight. And I wish I'd kept the reply because it was hilarious. It was stuff like every trip down to the local supermarkets, like going on tour with the stones because of the amount of gear you've got to take. And you might think you're a design snob, but you are going to have primary colored plastic in your living room. Yeah, and, all of that. And, uh, you know, you might think you're a music connoisseur, but you will be listening to Bob the Builder. And there was, there was <laughs> it's so true. So many of these things. It was brilliant. But unfortunately, I, I don't even know where it got lost in the midst of in the midst of my CompuServe email account or something. I don't know. But it's an example of, you know, the, the, the fact that, that Simon has always been very thoughtful, forward looking. We first met. 30 years ago now, uh, through his work with Audrey Jones. Um, and I was working for a speaker company called Rinker Science at that time. A great American speaker company. Yes, yes, a great American speaker company. So I thought it'd be really worth talking to Simon about how what his feelings were, both on the touring side and the festival side, about how we come out of this and how the events industry moves on in a in a more thoughtful, differentiated way. So we've seen throughout this pandemic, artists communicate with their audiences in a virtual way. Initially from um, little intimate kind of me and my guitar in my front room, Zoom calling or um, you know Facebook Live to, to my group of fans to much bigger events like the the recent Billie Eilish concert that made a lot of use of uh, CGI and augmented reality. And uh, it was a really big event that I imagine would be tough to replicate in a real world live situation. So, you know, it, both in terms, I'd like you to talk about both the idea of what touring is going to look like going forward from this and also what festivals might look like going forward from this wow well i think the one thing that sits at the heart of this is the fact that people will always want to share the same space with their favorite artists mm -hmm. and whether that's a muddy field with a hundred thousand other people or it's an intimate venue you are there in that moment in time in the same place and they are performing to you they are playing the guitar they're playing the drums you are hearing it as it happens and there will never ever be a substitute for that what i worry about is the fact that we may end up in a situation where that is a distant memory for our children you know they've experienced it but it may disappear. But that said, in the words of, of Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, nature will find a way. The, the, the creative possibilities of doing the kind of thing online that Billie Eilish 
has done and, and others are really exciting. But you can never get away from the fact that people will be watching it, certainly within you know the next five years, on a two-dimensional screen, potentially with a dodgy internet connection, and maybe even on their phone. So, you know, it sounds sounds like nails being dragged down a blackboard. And people will not have the emotional impact of a big sound system moving air, which, you know, is part in, and the pressure is passing through their body and, and moving them accordingly. And what has to happen is a meeting of those two situations somehow. If we, if we, let, let, you know, let's say the vaccines all work and everybody's cured and social distancing is a thing of the past, we can but dream. Let, let's imagine that for a moment. What will happen, I am certain, is that the kind of the augmented reality, uh, 3D projection, maybe even 3D printing, I don't know, uh, with a with a performance that is highly polished and runs to time code, there is every possibility that I think we will be experiencing things that we can could not ever imagine happening live in front of us because we have the kind of technology that can create those experiences. But what they can't do is take the artist out of the screen and stick them in front of you in real life. But a combination of the two are potentially really exciting. But what we're talking about really here is visual. It's purely visual, not, not audio. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that, yeah, the possibilities visually are really exciting. Um, we, we, in the audio department, face uh, things like the fact that sound doesn't travel at the same speed of light. Uh, and stuff like that it starts to is that you know that that introduces no end of problems but you know first of all what we have to do is educate people into the i think the emotional value of listening to music in a way that moves you physically mm -hmm. and that you know we're in danger of losing that I think there's there's some interesting things to to follow up on here. So one of the things that occurs to me is I think probably we miss it now that we don't have it. So I've got tons of friends that are just desperate to get back to to seeing live music. Um and they may have taken it for granted when they were doing it, you know, every week or even a few times a year. But when you can't do it at all, it's just like, I'd love to do that again. Just like, I'd love to go to a restaurant and have a good meal. Or <laughs> <Yeah>, go, <on>, yeah. <laughs> go to a pub, have a decent pint. Um, Absolutely. I'm bored of drinking at home. <laughs> but there's another side to it, which I was thinking about with musicians and, and other performers, which is, we are talking about the audience and the audience experience, but there's the other side of it. So can you perform as well to a set of cameras that, that then you no, can dance to 100,000 people in a muddy field? 
And I was thinking about this. I watched football a lot, or soccer, as American people would call it. And all of the football games are being played in front of empty stadia. And I can't imagine what it's like being a footballer now and just kind of, it's more like kicking it around in the park on a Sunday morning because there's no one cheering. So there's a bit more at stake financially well, than a Sunday morning. There <laughs> <it is>. but, <laughs> you know, have you talked to any of the artists? Both of us used to be musicians. Well, yeah, you still are more than me. But, you know, I've, we both had experience ourselves of going out and playing in front of audiences of all sorts of different sizes. Um, and I can't imagine not having that experience. Have you talked to other musicians about the the concept of creating a live, live in inverted commas, experience in front of no one versus actually being there and doing it in front of an audience? Well, the the only artist I've had um, of any kind of repute that I've had a conversation with directly is Alison Goldfrapp. Mm -hmm. And Alison, uh, I mean, she's a really iconic performer. I mean, it, it, I mean, she she is recognised in the states, I think. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we came and toured there in 2017, um, mostly on the west coast, but it, and it was brilliant, but. She's a very, you know, she's a proper performer. It's all about, it's all about the posing, the costumes, the, you know, the 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 sort of quasi operatic singing, and, and the actual sort of power of the performance. And she and I have been talking recently about her. Just you know, she just wants to perform, and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, we, we've we've been talking about the possibilities. You know how that could that could happen, but it can't happen in front of an audience. So whatever you know, it's going to be a diluted clinical thing, whatever. Because the energy, it's well, it's much harder for people to summon the energy when there is no immediate feedback from a crowd. Um, I think it takes a special kind of artist to be able to overcome that. There are ways around it. Uh, one of the things I was really impressed with over lockdown was the way Elbow presented themselves hmm. with their Elbow rooms. You know, the, they put it out there. You know, what do you want to hear us play? And they chose however twelve songs out of their what their fan base wanted, and they recorded themselves performing them at home and presented it as as a. It was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You know, they were there on screen. As a band, albeit in different, you know, in different spaces, it has its own appeal, but it's never going to make the same kind of impact as if you're actually there. Mm -hmm. and what, I don't know. A good artist will overcome that, but you can't get away from the fact that you're watching them on a screen and possibly even listening to them on a phone. Heaven forbid, but it happens all the time. I, I think, from an artist's point of view. There is, I mean, not not only, you know, when you, when you take into account how the record industry has failed in the past 15, 20 years to, to really keep up with what's going on with technology and mm -hmm. do right by the artists, we're in danger, I think, of that happening again if we're not careful. I mean, because live, from the point of view of an income stream for an awful lot of artists is all they've got. And if we lose that, we're losing a fundamental part of our culture. 
because it's not just about pop music. It's about everything. It's about folk music. It's about going into a pub in Ireland and, you know, a session going on in the corner, or it's about, it's about going to Carnegie Hall and, and, and listening to Beethoven or, or it's all of these things. And we are in danger of losing all of that. If we don't find a way, I don't have the answers, but if we don't find a way, we're going to lose it all. And that would just be beyond disastrous. It would be, I think, uh, you know, when I've talked a lot about the future of business in different areas of, you know, workplace of the retail hospitality, a common theme has been to do with how business is done. So, so years ago, it used to be we sold products, stuff, boxes, and then it moved to we sold solutions, which were kind of collections of boxes that go together to to, to create um, a solution. A solution could be a meal. Um, or it could be a sound system, or it could be, you know, it's a whole variety of things. And in business in general, people in the, in the last decade or two have been talking about moving from solutions to experiences. So not just a collection of things, but um, a more multi-sensory experience. And now there's there's a fair bit of talk in business in general about moving from experiences to memories, which are experiences that are so rich and unique and ephemeral that they become memories that you treasure for life. You know, not just experience them while you're there, but the next week you've, you've forgotten them. But It's called a gig, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to say. The events industry is... That's that's your your trade. That's you know, at its very best, there are gigs I went to. Oh, 30, 40 years ago, that are just as vivid in my head now, yeah, as they were then. I remember Peter Gabriel at Earl's Court. I remember Steel Eye Span at Hammersmith Odeon, or, or you know, there's any number of these gigs, and that that's what your industry does creates experiences and at its very best creates experiences that are so strong that they're memories that you will treasure forever. And sitting on your sofa, eating pizza, watching reality TV in a lockdown is probably not memorable enough to, to, you know, 20 years from now, beyond thinking, wow, we got through that. You know, I I bet most people are not going to be thinking. I wish I was on my sofa. What you know, kind of. I that's that's a once in a lifetime experience. So how do we get people to to realize the value in what you guys have been doing for you know since the beginning of the industry? What has to happen is reinvention. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's across the board. That's not just in the events industry. We have to find a way, uh, and it's like so many different situations. There will be a resolution. We just don't know what it is yet, and it takes a long time for people to accept that kind of level of change. Mm-hmm. 
you know, it's like us and Brexit. Brexit's going to be a disaster in this country for 10 years. I think so. Yeah. Not everyone no, agree with me. I think so too. You know, it's going to affect the way that we live our lives for the next 10 years easily. Uh, and but, then, but the, fundamentally, that's because we find it difficult to accept change. Mm-hmm. The core issue here is how do you substitute that feeling of being in that place at the same time as Foo Fighters or Billie Eilish or whoever it might be, you know, Narky Puppy. I don't know. How do you how do you actually how do you actually replace that? I have to say that you know the cynical part of me it is is saying that in time that'll all leach out of our culture and there'll be something vastly you know it'll be like mp3s in the early days it'll be an mp3 version of the live experience that that people will accept because that's all there is you know the, the good old days it's i i watched a, an interview with hugh pageant the producer hugh pageant yeah yeah a brilliant you know he's he's produced anybody that's worth listening to and he talks a lot in that interview about how he he managed to achieve what he achieved and you know with, with with the limitations of the technology that he had available to him at the time and it was incredible what he did you know there's the man who came across phil collins drum sound on in the air tonight and you know happy accident but but iconic but it would have only happened with that set of equipment in that place at that point in time. And what we have now is a situation where in, in the world of recording, all of that, all those expensive, massive analog consoles and the outboard gear and, you know, the studio spaces are essentially irrelevant. And it's it, we, we have a situation where Anybody with a bit of nouse can actually recreate those kind of things sat in front of their desktop, laptop, whatever. And we now accept that as the norm. In the in the 80s, the norm was what Hugh Pudgeon was talking about. What we have now, you know, watching the Foo Fighters headline Glastonbury or Adele or whatever, just pulling some icons out of the air, that they will live with me forever, and I'm 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 really really happy to be able to say that you know, my my our eldest son Harry was he was there squashed against the barrier during Adele's set at Glastonbury, and whilst he's a bit of a rocker, he was completely and utterly blown away and transfixed by her, uh, and he'll never forget that. Mm-hmm. But we are, you know, if all that disappears because the technology to cope with what's going on with COVID takes its place, then it, it, we, you know, we, we will be, it, well, people will be living in a society where these kind of cultural events are basically virtual. And that whole experience of being in that place at that time with those people disappears. As, as, a, a, as a, an analogue to that, Imagine what it must have been like in 
in, in the courts of Austria or somewhere like that, in Salzburg, when Mozart first, you know, he, he got a load of musicians together and rehearsed and performed his 40th symphony. That was such a unique experience that it would have been unforgettable. And yet those kind of things never happen anymore. So I think we're basically, and this is fairly doomy, I know, but I think we're basically in a situation where that, we are, you know, we are, we are in danger of, of losing touch with those kind of events because of A, the world health situation, and B, the technology that is going to enable us to deal with that. Basically, we've got to watch our backs, really. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that technology is, uh, it, you know, technology isn't good or bad. Technology is. It's how we use technology. It's like computers, not good or bad, but if you spend all day, every day looking at a screen and never interacting with another human being, probably not a great thing. I remember Peter Gabriel talking about this 30 years ago. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, and I was only just thinking about this as we were talking. You and I have both been to Japan, um, and, and I think you went to see Team Labs Planets. Did you go and see Planets? Or I don't think I saw Planets. I saw the other one. Borderless. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's an amazing experience that I will remember for the rest of my life. Team Labs do work now in restaurants, creating meals with that audio and video background. And these restaurants, there's a restaurant in Ginza in Japan, eight people. That's how many it seats. One sitting a, a, a uh, night. That restaurant is profitable. Admittedly, you pay a lot of money to go there. But the experience you have going there, which is to do with taste and smell, touch, sight, sound, you will remember for the rest of your life. You know, as I sit here thinking and listening to you, I think your industry has a role in educating the bigger business world in how to create experiences and memories. So, for example, business now uses um, improv comedy and actors to help people, business people, learn how to better navigate change and be more creative and more flexible. So these people have come out of the comedy world and the acting world and are kind of acting as business coaches to help those executives be a little less staid, a little more open to change, a little more flexible. Could the events industry have a role in helping all elements of business create these experiences and memories because that's what you've been doing for the last few decades. Yeah, I do. I think if, I mean, the creative element, you know, the people who design shows, whether it's sets or lighting or, 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 or whatever it might be, uh, I mean, essentially they're, they're, they're experiential architects and some of the stuff that you see is remarkable. I think one of the most impressive was um, it was one of the Take That tours where there was a massive, there was a robot on the stage throughout the set, but the, but then that suddenly changed into an enormous one that moved out into a middle of the stadium with a band in its hands. And, you know, just incredible 
engineering skills and uh, to bring that kind of thing together, which, I mean, I I never saw that show, but my wife Sarah did, and it stayed with her Mm -hmm. ever since. And the kind of, uh, yeah, the minds that put those kind of things together, these are the same people that design, you know, Olympic opening and closing ceremonies and, and all of that kind of stuff are just extraordinary and there's there's a huge amount for the world of business and architecture and social design uh there's a huge amount that these people have to bring to the table Mm -hmm. um i I think that um from the more practical side of things if you want something to happen quickly and efficiently then get a get a touring crew to do it sure something complicated sure it, we, we, I don't know if you have anything similar in the States, but we have um, Nightingale hospitals here. They're sort of temporary hospitals. Some of them have been put in temporary buildings, mm-hmm. some in existing empty ones. But quite a few of those, they literally went up over the space of two or three days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, you know, it, it was it was crews that did it. Mm-hmm. it. It was, yeah, and, and, you know, they delivered on time to spec and uh, it's a whole raft of incredibly capable, motivated people who are, are there and if given the opportunity, because I have to say the majority of them won't go looking for it themselves, but if given the opportunity... They can bring a huge amount to people's businesses. Yeah. I mean, I think of you and I, where you've done the sound at uh, the TED conference, TED Global, and, you know, I've been to many of those. And it's basically a business conference, an ideas conference, but with relatively high production values. And then you go to C2MTL, where Cirque du Soleil is one of the the partners, and, and that's like TED on steroids. And then I think of every business conference I've been to, and I just think, wouldn't it be a bit better if the production values were higher or every product launch or every trade show booth? And and like, would that not be more memorable, more compelling, more effective if there was a little more drama, theater, um, creativity involved? And that's what your industry deals in. But I, I think there's been, in the 90s, there was a huge amount of that going on. Uh, I, I worked on product launches for ICL computers, Toyota, uh, Mobile. I, I can't remember. There were loads of them. And, and, and the, the amount of money being spent, Porsche was another one. And uh, the amount of money being spent on these things was huge. And, and the experience that, that people got was on the whole you know the big picture was actually you know it was amazing but the one thing very often that let it down was the reason that they were there and for the one thing that comes to mind was was icl computers they for two or three years in a row they spent a fortunes on these massive productions using moving auditoria and things like this but what was being revealed was something that looked like a refrigerator, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know. Uh, um, and 
it's very difficult to make something like that look sexy. Sure, sure. <laughs> and, and 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 it's, but you know, with the right people in the right place, there are endless possibilities. I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the you know the the content has to be there, and but but my point is, if we as a if we in business are moving towards experiences and then memories, the events industry are the people that can help create them. Architectural lighting in, in buildings is another one. You know, years ago you put up a building, you didn't think about it, but now the, the um, live set, the events industry has influenced the architectural lighting industry so that, you know, you've got buildings as, don't get me started on acoustics <laughs> well there you have this acoustics no i won't get you started on acoustics <laughs> what i will get you started on though is something that both you and i are passionate about and we both had some experience of which is immersive audio and how this might play into you know what events what tours what festivals you know how are we going to drag people out of their homes and give them something that they can't easily get in their homes. So bring them back out to gigs, to, to festivals and things. Maybe immersive audio in a way m- more compelling even than you can get in a home theater is, is part of the answer. What's your experience with immersive audio? Um, it's on kind of three fronts, really. Uh Recently, um, home cinemas where I've been pushing to, uh, I've, I've been doing the acoustics and the the uh, loudspeaker system design and commissioning of yeah several home cinemas, some CDR award winners and stuff, which has all been great. Like many things in audio, if it's coming from behind you, it's like it's different. And you can hear sound from behind you and think, oh, there's something coming from behind me. But when it actually convinces you, you feel in totally kind of enveloped in that moment and part of that moment. The audio surpasses what you're seeing on a fairly limited visual, you know, from a visual aspect. You've got a, you know, a four meter screen in front of you, whatever. You're looking at that, but the audio is everywhere, and and your peripheral vision, which plays so much, you know, a, a massive part of what we experience in every day, doesn't come into it. But your or the audio experience is everywhere. I think that there are two. The the I'll just talk about the my kind of involvement. So there's the cinemas. There's some large scale events. Uh, that I've done at festivals and as a, and as a, a touring production. Um, <clears throat> and also uh, as uh, art installations. Um, the, the, the issue with touring systems to be effective immersively is set up time you know, the, whether or not the venue's suitable, et cetera. I, I, I've designed and and and, uh, and and operated some systems recently where we've done immersive audio for 15, 16,000 people uh, in a sort of an 80-meter 
diameter arena. Uh, and the, the reaction to that from people was incredible. And this is the icon stage that we talked about at the beginning of the, of the podcast. That, that was the, basically a 6.1 system, which didn't work like a 6.1 system because when you have an arena that big, you can't, you cannot, because of the nature of sound in air, you cannot deliver an effective surround experience for everybody within that arena. You can do within about a 25-meter golden circle in the middle. Outside of that, the best you can do is hope well, you can give people an experience of sound being in different places uh, and not just from one point or a stereo system in front of you. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's an exciting thing that is is difficult to achieve, and you do have to make some compromises. Uh, but that in itself, if 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 there is a future in immersive audio in a live situation it has to be around a different kind of model where essentially the audience comes to the event rather than the event going to the audience mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the traditional touring model is you know major cities you know and you you have several trucks full of gear and you move around and depending on the size of the show maybe one truck it might be it might be 50 trucks um, but I, th I thought a really interesting model, I think it was 2015 when Kate Bush played for the first time in 35 years, she played a series of shows at one venue over the course of a month. I think it was 30 odd nights. Uh, and people came from all over the world to see that show. Not you, though, Graham, I understand, sadly. I couldn't get tickets. They sold out too quickly. So, so that show was designed from the ground up with an immersive element playing a major part of it, uh, and, and it worked superbly well. It was in one venue, and the show had been designed that way, and that is the only way that really a, you know, a touring model of that would have to be to be financially viable in a venue for more than one night, probably a week at least, yeah, for it to be viable, and and it's perfectly possible. Uh, it just requires a lot more planning, um, in, in order to you know to make it work. The, the, anything to do with immersive audio live, there has to be a total engagement with the artist, the production team, and the venues. That you know that all has to be brought together because at the moment you know you stick a bunch of lights and speakers in a truck and you drive off you show up you put them up and you get on with it and and everybody has a great time and goes home with a smile on their face you hope uh you know it's relatively straightforward immersive audio to be convincing takes an awful lot more effort yeah but it's possible i i think i mean i first got involved in it 30 35 years ago at tempo reale in florence with uh Luciano Berrio um, doing classical gigs, modern, you know, kind of um, late 20th century classical gigs and putting like 60 speakers in concert halls in the ceiling and locating different sound sources. So 
you know, I, I agree with you. The artist has to be involved right at the beginning. And the whole idea of truly immersive audio, you know, I, I'm old enough to have lived through quadraphonic when, when yeah. you know, we had four speakers and it was all like special effects type things. And we, we reverted back to stereo because that's how in an acoustic environment we would hear things because we've got two ears and, you know, you're listening to things that come from the front. But more recently, musicians have been thinking um, about what would it look like if different sound sources, maybe not even instruments, but, but um, seeds, if, if you like, were coming from all around you. So it wasn't like recreating the experience of a band at the front, but it was more a complete immersive soundscape. And, you know, Imogen Heap, um, we worked together initially with the University of San Diego, of California, San Diego, and then touring with the DNB uh, soundscape product, where I think some of those challenges you mentioned about if you're too close to any one of the speakers, you you know that immersive element goes away. I think with things like Soundscape and Lisa and and Martin Audio, you were telling me has um, something similar with with large numbers of speakers where you can enlarge that that sweet spot to almost the whole audience. Um, yeah, that that's interesting to me, and I agree that that you'd you couldn't um, tour. I think Imi toured, toured it, Kraftwerk have toured it, uh, Bjork's toured it, sort of. Um, but a tour would look different. It would look like, you know, we were talking before this podcast about maybe five venues in, in the UK for a week each and, and people yeah. travel further. So, that you know, I would have traveled from Portland, Oregon to London to see Kate Bush. But, you know, I, I'm a huge fan. But if I had to travel to Seattle or San Francisco or something like that, you know, it's more of a pain in the ass than going down to my local theater in downtown Portland, but it's doable. Um, and, and maybe that's some of the future, making the experience more memorable. You, yeah, you have to put more into it. You've got to travel a little further. You've got to pay a little more. Um, but it's something you'll remember for the rest of your life. So here's something I'm going to ask you. Give me three gigs that you've seen in your life that are memorable and why. Oh, well, the first one that I, th I think of is um, is Peter Gabriel Earl's Court, the Secret World Tour. Um, and it was, God. I mean, it, musically, it's an amazing uh, period in his life. The, the performance was amazing. It was actually ephemeral because it was one of the few gigs on that tour that Sinead O'Connor did rather than Paula Cole. Um, the staging was was amazing with with um, two stages with a catwalk. The way he came on with with a phone box coming out of the uh, out of the, the the stage. It to this day remains the best way I've ever seen a band go off where they. They oh, had yeah. to get put into the suitcase, and and Absolutely. that was just the staging was amazing. Um, I mentioned earlier a, a Steel Ice Band concert uh, in Hammersmith Odeon, and and this was partly to do with it was one of the earliest concerts I went to, and it's partly to do with um, it was a Christmas concert, and the band had decided they were going to give the audience back their money. Um, 
And the way they were oh, wow. going to do it is drop um, pound notes from the, the ceiling. So um, they actually did this kind of uh, during the encore. They, they, but not everybody got their money back, I'm sure. But the people in the balcony were pissed. Yeah, <laughs> it was a disproportionately. It's kind of like uh, William Gibson says, you know, the future's already here, but not evenly distributed. It was like <laughs> the funds went to the audience for not evenly distributed. But it, you know, it was an event, and I think probably yeah. the third one is a much more recent one, which is a Kronos Quartet 40th anniversary event at, in LA, which was a a really interesting multimedia event where they were there. Uh, there was a film element to it, a documentary film element to it as well, and um, and and they were all events that that were really rich and resonant um, and also ephemeral. Um, certainly yeah. the Steel Eye Span one, the next night they did, you know, people came with umbrellas and things expecting the same thing to happen and it didn't. Um, <laughs> the Kronos Quartet thing, they only did one event. So, you know, you mentioned Kate Bush. You also went to see another gig that I would have given my right arm to go and see, which was the the farewell Crowded House gig on the uh, steps of the Sydney Opera House, um, and you know it's those those you had to be there moments. I think. Yeah, uh, I it, but but it it's I'm kind of interested in what you know. What were the specific things about those shows that that made them memorable? Because if I, if I when I talk about Kate Bush, for me, it was. I mean, I saw Kate Bush first time round in the the very sort of short amount of time that she performed for, which was after the second album. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I think it was the London Palladium I saw her, but the the and you know that and that still resonates. But seeing her this time round in 2015 was was all about the the I mean the staging was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen. It, it was phenomenal. And, um, the, the, yeah, utterly, utterly unforgettable. And the show itself was designed in such a way as to draw people in, in a way that I've never really experienced before. And, and she wasn't afraid to use tricks, uh, to, um, you know, I mean, the whole of the, the, the show was in three parts, the, the ninth wave section in the middle, mm -hmm. you know, the majority of that uh or the first part of it anyway she was on a video screen singing mm -hmm. you know she she wasn't physically singing but it didn't really matter um you know that the, the that entire experience was memorable for actually I'll, I'll be honest it was memorable for everything but the audio the the, the surround element of it was great the actual mix mm -hmm. uh left me a bit disappointed um but uh, but that you know that that it was, I suppose, the uniqueness and the feeling of experiencing something that not everybody was going to get to see mm -hmm. was what made that, especially twice, I'd say that again. It was unique for all kinds of reasons, but but also utterly unrepeatable. Mm -hmm. What about, and I can't remember their name, you've, you've done uh, some work, I think a group of disabled musicians. Oh, yeah. The British Power Orchestra. Yeah, talk about that because that was that's really interesting in that the audience and the musicians 
mingled and tell us a bit about that there. This is a show called The Nature of Why. The British Power Orchestra, and that's P-A-R-A Orchestra, uh, is the first uh, professional orchestra specifically for disabled musicians in the world. And uh, it's been created by one of the most incredible people I've ever met, a guy called Charles Hazelwood. Uh, he's dynamic. He's, you know, he, he's a brilliant conductor and a, a real orator and a, and a, you know, a great personality. And he set out to create this orchestra to give disabled musicians a better chance of being able to practice their craft. And it's been hugely successful. Uh, I was lucky enough to be asked to sound design a sh this show, The Nature of Why, uh, which set out to break down all the boundaries between you know, performers and the audience and the way that that has happened is that the there are nine musicians a uh i think it's a 12-piece string section um two singers and five dancers all occupy the same space as as the audience uh so the the maximum audience number is about 160 people mm -hmm. Um, and there's a 15 meter circle in which the whole thing takes place, and uh, the audio element of it, it is about giving, enhancing. If you've got somebody playing a violin and they're surrounded by 50 people, it tends to be absorbed and not very, you know, it loses its impact. Mm -hmm. um, so the sound system plays an integral part of that because it becomes. Uh, it's it, yeah, it's an absolutely essential part of it because what it does is it lifts the musicians and the singers above people's heads, but also positions them within the the fifteen meter circle, mm -hmm. uh, so that people who might not be near what might somebody might be playing a solo can identify the fact that somebody is performing over the other side, and if they want, they can go and find them mm -hmm. or not, mm -hmm. you know. If the guitarist, you know, is is house right, they can go and find the guitarist. It, it, it's um, so the, so the sound system and the performance are entirely integrated, uh, and uh, it's not about making it louder. It's about making it. It's about allowing the audience to engage with what's happening in three dimensions, um, and it's a really exciting project that. Obviously, due to social distancing, doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it's interesting in that it. I, I imagine everyone that went to see that and hear it will remember it for for the rest of their lives. Because you know, yeah, people are absolutely blown away by it. Yeah, because it, so musically, it, it's it's brilliant. Yeah. So um, I, you know, we could and usually do when we meet talk for hours and hours and hours. But I'm conscious this is a podcast and people have other things to do. So do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to, to give us before we go? I think that if we're talking about audio specifically, I think it's really important that people stop and think about how audio affects their everyday lives and what an important part it plays 
uh, and I think give audio a chance is is really if you're an integrator, perhaps you know audio is not your strong point. You're great with video cameras or or you know whatever it might be, but audio is not your strong point. Is stop and think about that and imagine what a difference an audio system that's actually been created and thought you know uh, uh, and thought through by somebody who truly understands it what a difference that might make to your end client um I, I think that for years forever audio has been you know it's played second fiddle to a lot of things but is more fundamental really it has been in the past to our survival than anything else mm-hmm. you know if hear things in the dark we get eaten Audio is massively important to the way people feel. Mm-hmm. And in times like this, when it can be pretty difficult to get excited about stuff, I think good audio can truly make a difference to the way people feel. I don't have, I don't have any answers to really, I have ideas and opinions, but I don't have any answers to the way that we can actually, you know, to, to, to how we can actually come out of all of this bigger and better but i think if people at least stop to think about it then that's a start yeah yeah i agree i think i mean this this experience stuff is about multi-sensory stuff and right now the your sense of smell your sense of touch and your sense of taste to some extent are dangerous um so that only leaves two senses your sense of sight and your sense of sound and business for since the beginning of business everything has revolved about what around one of our senses which is our sense of sight you know every company has a, a logo it's an audio logo very few people company companies have sound logos you know it's it's a we've used one of our senses to 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 act for, for all of our senses we have five of them we can't use to one extent or another three of them at the moment that leaves only two. One's overused. The other one is audio. So, I I totally agree that that you know it's the biggest bang for for buck in terms of creating more memorable experiences. So Simon um, has done some of the has been involved and has engineered some of the best sounding events I've ever been to, um, and he is the person that if I ever reform a band and make it big, we'll get to do my sound. <laughs> be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous, yes. That would definitely be ridiculous at my age. But um, he's also, as I hope you've seen and heard from this podcast, not seen but heard, uh, a really good thinker with some really interesting um, opinions and a wealth of knowledge. If you want to get in touch with uh, Simon, how how would you do that, Simon? How's the best way of getting in touch with you? Uh, well, I have a Facebook page um, and a website. Um, both of them are Simon Honeywill. Um, the website is simonhoneywill.com, uh, spelt correctly, uh, which is uh, Simon is S-I-M-O-N. Um, and the Honeywill bit is a bit weird because it's H-O-N-Y-W-I-L-L. So that's simonhoneywill.com and my Facebook page is Simon Honeywill. I also have um, a Facebook group called Sound Essentials with the Sonic Guru. Um, I brand myself as the Sonic Guru. So 
uh, and that is designed to um, ultimately share ideas and opinions, but also it's about uh, trying to draw people in so that I can mentor them online and they can pay me for it. Fair <laughs> enough. That's... Anybody wants to be mentored online, the, the Sonic Guru is where it's at. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for your time, Simon. I always enjoy talking to you. And thank you for all of your time, listeners. I know that uh, you have busy lives, even in these days. And uh, thanks for choosing to listen to this. Please leave your comments on whatever platform you're listening to it on, Spotify, uh, Google, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, whatever you're listening to it on. And please tune in to other episodes of Surroundscapes. Uh, Leave us comments about what you liked, what you didn't like, who you'd like us to be talking to. And hopefully um, I'll be talking to you soon on another episode of Surroundscapes.